Welcome to the Pretty Deep Media Podcast. I'm Preeti. And I'm Deepa. We are two sisters who ask better questions to get better answers. When we looked at what balances the estrogens, the androgens came up as one possibility. But then what is it that controls the androgens and what controls the hormones or rather regulates the hormones in general? And much of the literature talked about vitamin D. And so the next step in the mission was to learn as much about vitamin D as possible. And there were two particular stories that stuck out. One was the story that the naturopathic practitioner told us about. It was her own patient who had recurrent breast cancer. Yeah, she had it in one breast and got treated for it after surgery, chemo, but then it came back in the other breast. And so this time... Uh, the patient had expressed a desire to at least try and address um, the body and whatever imbalances may have been there itself. So didn't she uh, up her vitamin D and over the course of many, many, many months, I mean, I think it was almost two years, if I recall, her vitamin D went up from 19 um, to the low 90s. And then when they went to scan her to see what the malignant um, little mass was doing, the people who scanned her told her they couldn't even see anything at that point. That's right. So she was working with one doctor originally, and she told her doctor she did not want to go through conventional treatment again. She had already been through chemo once in her life, and she didn't want to do it again. And the doctor fired her and said if she was going to pursue natural therapies or alternative therapies, he could not support it. So she found another doctor who agreed to monitor her through scans while she tried alternative approaches. And she worked with this naturopathic practitioner who noticed her vitamin D had gone really low. And so they worked together over the next, she said it was a year and a half to two years, to raise the level of vitamin D. When it got to 92, she went in for another scan and they came back to her and said they wouldn't even know where to do a biopsy because they couldn't see anything anymore. So this convinced the naturopathic practitioner that vitamin D, in her case, was responsible for helping her. And then there was another story that I had read online. It was a clinical study in which they had tracked one particular patient who had breast cancer three times in her life. The third time around, but before she went through the surgery, she had a few weeks in which she was waiting. She decided to take 10,000 IUs of D per day, and she went on a keto diet. And when they did the surgery, they found that the tumor markers had actually changed. So when they did the biopsy originally, she was HER2 positive. By the time they got to the surgery, though, she was HER2 negative, and she was estrogen positive. And of course, we know that the more you shift towards being hormonally sensitive, the more differentiated the cells are and the more easy it is to treat. And so just to clarify, when the cells are more differentiated, even if they're abnormal, they can become closer and closer to normal cells, which means that they, would might, they might be subject to normal cell regulation. Exactly, and that includes normal cell death as well. And so these two stories were intriguing enough to go into a really deep exploration of vitamin D. And there's lots of literature, lots of articles about the benefits of D. And I actually took all this to the honest doctor and he wholeheartedly agreed. He said, we don't know why, but we do know D is important. 
he preferred a D level of at least 60. But then many of these other articles had suggested you should go no higher, no lower than 100. Well, and as per usual, you hear conflicting data when you start researching this. So knowing this, you really decided to go all out on the research and you poured through all the studies, you searched for doctors who have, are well-versed well in this. And what did you end up finding? Well, the literature is pretty much all in agreement with each other that when your D levels are 60 or above, and the vitamin D council agreed with this, in fact, that was also their recommendation, that they see the most success with malignancies when vitamin D levels are above 60. Is this true for all malignancies? Or? All malignancies. Okay. That said, they say between 40 and 60 is really where everybody should be. And my primary care doctor several years ago had said 34 would be sufficient. And so one thing was clear from all of the uh, reading material, which was that the higher D levels that are closer to anywhere between 60 to 100 is considered much more optimal. Then I started listening to as many podcasts as I could about vitamin D. And there were several that were fascinating. There was a Canadian dentist who went into a lot of history with vitamin D and vitamin K2. And he, it is his opinion that it is one of the biggest travesties of our current state of humanity that we don't know the benefits of D3 and K2. He said not only is bone health linked to this, but all kinds of issues related to metabolic health stem from D3 and K2. There was another Canadian doctor who's not a dentist. Um, I think he was a primary care doctor, but he talked about how important D is, and sometimes he prescribes 40, 50,000 units to somebody who might be coming down with the flu. And this high dosage in just a matter of a few days makes the flu go away or much easier to deal with. So not the glass of orange juice that we're told. <laughs> no, no. And he was the first doctor whom I heard say that melanoma is usually caused by low D and that basal cell carcinoma he called innocuous. And of course, most people think that basal cell carcinoma, which is non-melanoma skin cancer, or melanoma, which is a different kind of skin cancer, uh, many people equate with excess sunshine or you know sun damage. Um, but he said that's not necessarily the case at all. Did he say why? Because vitamin D, we get from the sunshine, we make it from the sunshine, and so it actually would help cases of melanoma. So what is the role of sunscreen then? We're all told, you know, from the time that we're small to the time that we're older, you know, slather on the sunscreen when we're outside. So what happens if you put sunscreen on and you're not getting the D infusion into your skin? Hmm. This doctor did address that, that sunscreen is not necessary at all, unless you were out for hours and hours and hours at a time, you know, very, very frequently. But if you're not and you're out there for a couple of hours a day, that's actually very good for you. And there was uh, and the naturopathic practitioner sent me a very interesting PowerPoint presentation, which also talked about the linkages between low vitamin D and melanoma and how sunscreen became a very big business and somehow has convinced the masses of people that we all need it because we can otherwise get sun damage, when in fact the opposite is true. Those were some very interesting findings. There were many other podcasts on vitamin D. One of them talked about uh, the vitamin D receptor. Every cell in the body that would take vitamin D 
does so through what's called a vitamin D receptor. Or VDR. VDR for short, exactly. And so the VDR a variant that each of us has is very different though because of genetic variants. Just as we have different genetic variants for other genes, we have one for the vitamin D gene. And so your vitamin D receptor could be very different from my vitamin D receptor. So what that would suggest is that for some people who have a particular strain, they may not need super high levels potentially circulating in serum. But then for other people, they may need higher levels of decirculating in serum because their receptors are different. Exactly. Imagine the shape of the receptor. The easiest way to explain it is that the shape of the vitamin D receptor can be different from one person to the next, depending on which variant of VDR you have. So what one person's needs of vitamin D could be would be very different from somebody else. And if you have the genetically poor variant, you will need more vitamin D circulating in your body to compensate for that. In addition to that, there is also what's called the vitamin D transport protein. And that is, has a genetic variant of its own. And you will hear people who are specialized in this talk about how, depending on which variant you have of the vitamin D transport, you will again have different needs of D. And just to stop for a second, vitamin D is not a vitamin. No, it's actually a hormone. It was named a vitamin because it was the fourth discovered substance and assumed to be a vitamin, but it is a hormone and it is manufactured by the body and it's done so through the 7-DHC, the cholesterol molecule. And so if you have the right gut bacteria, you have the appropriate amounts of this cholesterol molecule and it sits in your epidermis and then when you're exposed to UVB, the 7-DHC changes into vitamin D3. Now, do we retain this ability to make vitamin D our entire lives? If you have the right gut bacteria, you do. There is research that says we lose the ability to manufacture vitamin D as we age. However, there are studies that suggest that we can retain the same ability to manufacture vitamin D so long as we have the right gut bacteria. But if your gut bacteria deteriorate, then you lose the ability to manufacture vitamin D3 when exposed to sunshine. And of course, the big problem now is that most people are not out in the sun. Most people work in office jobs or they're inside. Most people are not spending the critical hours in the daytime outside. So this is all the stuff that you were hearing in these podcasts, you know, like a historiography of vitamin D and, you know, what role it plays in the body, at least in an overview sense. And then you came across uh, a particular podcast that you were so excited to share with me last spring. Yes. So this was Mind Body Green's podcast and their guest was Dr. Stephen Gundry. And he said in response to what would be the two most important lab tests anybody could take, he said fasting insulin was one and vitamin D was the other. He said the higher vitamin D levels typically correlate with people who live the longest and that his own vitamin D levels were around 120, which is way higher than the 30 or 60 that most doctors doctors recommend. Very much against what we had heard from a lot of doctors also. Exactly. So that whole entire podcast with Mind Body Green was so interesting that I, it led to a full investigation of this Dr. Gundry. And I got all of his books, listened to all of his podcasts, read all of his articles. And his theory is super interesting. 
it is on the premise that lectins, which are these sticky proteins that are found in plants, as well as other substances, can cause leaky gut. And that leaky gut is the cause of most, if not all, health issues. So these lectins, or these sticky proteins, um, which can cause havoc on our intestinal lining, are found in foods such as the nightshade family, which are eggplants and tomatoes, and etc., um, legumes, in lentils, and grains. Um, in fact, most of the things that we were eating on a regular basis actually had lectins in it. Um, he was the first person I heard who said oatmeal was terrible for human beings. And I thought that was so contrary to what we had been told by and, doctors. Well, not just what we had been told, but what we had been putting in our bodies for all those months and years. I mean, the, our kids grew up having oatmeal for the first several years. We were having uh, what we thought was a great uh, dish in a berry bar with uh, fruits and oats. And here we are hearing that actually that's probably not what you should be doing. Exactly. In fact, um, our grandfather had switched his breakfast to oats several years before he had passed away. And, and he was diabetic. And he was diabetic, and he had dementia later in his life. And I always wondered about that once I heard Dr. Gundry talk about oatmeal and how terrible it was. And our mother had switched to eating oats for breakfast, and of course we were eating oats. So I thought it was very bizarre that he should say oatmeal was not very healthy. But did he say, what was the reason that uh, he gave in the initial podcast that you listened to? Uh, well, because there's a lectin in even gluten-free oats. There's a lectin which resembles gluten. And our body does not tolerate that very well. Right. So now in the foods that you listed, like legumes and lentils, in some cases, he says in his books that you can pressure cook your way out of the lectins. You can get rid of them. But he said there are some foods, according to research, that you can't do that with. And some of those foods included oats, gluten, buckwheat. Right. Some of these foods, no matter how you processed or prepared them, you could not eliminate the lectins from them. And oatmeal and oats were one such food. So he said if you were going to have oats at all, it should be organic. And if you were going to have organic oats, please don't have it often. So one of the reasons that he cited was that glyphosate, this chemical that many food companies use... Let's round up, basically. Mm -hmm, ...was used on oats, even on organic oats. And so I called the oatmeal company that we purchased oatmeal from, which is an organic company, and asked them if there was any glyphosate in their product, and they said they could not guarantee that. So we decided as a family to stop eating oatmeal, and we noticed that actually Dr. Gundry may have been onto something because I had this rash for about six months after I started regularly eating oatmeal and homemade granola, which was made from the same oats. And this rash appeared on my face, and no matter what I did to heal it, I could not heal it from the outside. Once we gave up oats, the rash went away. My joint ache went away, and the fatigue that I had went away. And then I noticed when we gave it up in the family for the children, too, my younger child, who had severe eczema, and she had mood swings and tantrums, she had abdominal cramps, um, once we took the oats and, of course, the other sugars and the flowers out of her system, 
all of the other symptoms subsided. And when we reintroduced it, those symptoms would come back. And same with my daughter, too, who was about to turn three that summer. We were giving her oatmeal every day, even though uh, Pat and I were not eating it. And then as soon as we took the oatmeal away, her eczema started clearing up. Exactly. And one of the other mottos that Dr. Gundry said in all of his books and in his podcasts was give fruit the boot. And of course, people have come down hard on this. People have come down hard on me for even uh, mentioning this. Well, fruit has always been positioned as a very healthy substance. One of the first questions we are asked every year when we visit the pediatrician is, is the child eating three to five or six servings of fruit and vegetables a day. And they don't differentiate between vegetables and fruit. They think it's the same food. And I can see on the one hand where they're coming from. Fruit is a natural substance. It comes from the earth. It's not a processed food. But it is so high in sugar. Especially now with the way that we grow the fruits uh, year-round and how we can procure them. Exactly. So they're bred for sugar, and they contain fructose, which our body really can't use. So then what do you say to people, or what does he say, rather, when people say to him, well, fructose is a natural sugar. It's a, it's a sugar that occurs in nature. It's not processed. So Dr. Gundry talks about how fructose is converted into uric acid and into triglycerides by the body because it's not a sugar that can be used. He even cites studies that show that cancer cells could use the effects of fructose, but not the effects of glucose. And though there are small amounts of fructose in certain vegetables, they're so tiny. And the primary sugar in vegetables is glucose. And so the reason that fruit became a big problem in our society, according to Dr. Gundry, is because we were on a 365-day fruit cycle. I actually remember growing up we would not have fruit every day. We would buy it in season, and it was typically local. But through the last 25 years, that all changed. Now you can get fruit any day of the year, any fruit, from virtually anywhere in the world, even if it's not grown in season. And so this has created a 365-day sugar cycle. So I shared this with all of you, all of the findings from the podcast and all the books and all the information, and then we cut out oats, dairy, fruits, <laughs> grains, and sugars. And then you decided to consult with Dr. Gundry. Well, I did it for a couple of reasons. One was that, of course, we still hadn't gotten to the stage where I had been cleared for a pregnancy, but you know, my cycle hadn't resumed because of the blocker, and I had some time, right? So I thought, okay, let's just see what's going on in my body in a more in-depth view than just getting the basics done. So that was one reason. And then I was curious, what would he find if he checked me? After researching him and talking with you extensively, I wanted to know what was going on. So we did. Um, and for the first time in my adult life that I can remember, when I gave up fruits at the end of April, I got blood work done a month and a half later in early June. Triglycerides were finally below 100. So what was the change that you made that was responsible for the drop in triglycerides? Well, it's very interesting. I had um, stopped having milk in my coffee. That was one change, yes. So there was no more milk sugar coming into my body. Um, I switched to black coffee entirely, and I haven't looked back. The second thing that I did was take out fruits. Um, though there was still cheese, um, I, I'm not going to deny that, right? I was having cheese occasionally. For the most part, my diet was vegan. Um, it was plant-based, and 
I had eliminated fruits. So in that month and a half alone, I saw my triglycerides drop because every time I had gotten them checked, they had always been between, you know, 150 or 200 and no doctor could tell me why. So any primary care that has checked me would say, well, it's probably because you're having fried foods and cheese. And I said, no, I don't eat those things on a daily or even weekly basis. What else could be causing this? And not one doctor could tell me that sugar actually can excess sugar in someone's body could convert to triglycerides, which we didn't know until we found him. Exactly. And then you also were on higher vitamin D levels. What did you notice uh, what did you notice changing in your body? Yeah, so the D we had started upping from the previous year when I knew it was drastically low. Um, and so the honest doctor had given me some you know, fast boosts of the 50,000 I used, but then I was supplementing aggressively with drops too. And so throughout this year, I had not stopped that. Um, and plus, I think it helped that we spent time in California for radiation. I was there for a full month in the sun. So all those things together had kept my D pretty high. It was uh, over 100. And so I noticed throughout the year that I uh, was really quick with me uh, metabolic processes. I didn't feel um, hunger. I didn't feel fatigue. And my hair uh, was pretty strong, actually. It was the strongest that it had felt. Even my hairstylist remarked when she cut my hair in February of 2021, this was the strongest she had ever felt my hair to be. Exactly. I noticed very similar uh, occurrences, too, in terms of not losing as much hair, um, the metabolism. The food would digest right away, and eventually I would stop feeling hungry. And that was corresponding with the higher D levels. Yeah, so the D was high, the triglycerides were low, good cholesterol had come up for me. Um, of course, there were some nutritional changes we had made uh, that correlated with this. And so they told me when I consulted with this PA in July, a month after the blood work had come back, they said, just continue to you know keep your D up, take fish oil, you know, et cetera, it's anti-inflammatory. Um, and they recommended a couple of other supplements. Now, interestingly, they checked me for two things that no doctor had ever thought to check me for. This is Dr. Gundry's office. This is Dr. Gundry's office, yes. Um, and he checks this in every patient. Um, so the two genetic markers that I was checked for in my initial consult with him were for the celiac genetic marker and then MTHFR. Uh, but the celiac marker is obviously a gluten uh, sensitivity rate, so he's checking to see if you have a genetic marker that makes you predisposed to developing celiac or puts you at higher risk. I had one of the markers, not both. So though I don't have celiacs, I do have a predisposition to developing it. As we found out later, that uh, risk I inherited from our father. So you have a celiac marker, and then you also found out that you have another marker for the B12 gene. Yes, um, the B12 and the fold, yes, uh, together, B12 and folate. So this is called uh, methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase. So they call it the mother effer gene. He always laughs about that, it's MTHFR. You can have different copies of it. Um, I happen to have the homozygous copy of the seed uh, gene of MTHFR. Okay, so we were talking about VDR earlier. That's a variant for vitamin D receptor. This is a genetic variant for what function exactly? 
Well, I mean, it's many functions in some aspects, but basically um, I have a double copy of a gene that I got from both our mom and our dad. And what that suggests is that I have a difficult time methylating. So if you imagine a highway um, in New York City gridlock, that would be me if I was putting toxins that I couldn't uh, kind of methylate and clear out fast enough into my body. If you envision a clear highway, that would be someone who doesn't have the genetic makeup that I have, um, even if they put a few toxins in potentially, they might be able to kind of navigate their way out of it faster than me. So methylation is the process of clearing things out. Basically, yeah. So one telltale sign actually that um, is indicative of this is high homocysteine, which I actually didn't have, though my homocysteine has since come down even more. Um, so they say that you should be between seven and nine. Ideally, I was at 8.2 when they checked me last June. I'm now at 5.5 as of December. So clearly, um, I had supplemented with methyl B12 and methylfolate after this. That has led to even better um, you know, traffic movement in my body. But it all kind of tied back to Clomid. And when I brought this up with the PA, I said, does this have something to do with why uh, a synthetic like Clomid or even tamoxifen led to such adverse events in my body? She said, yes, it does. But she said, it also correlates with fertility. And I said, really? And she said, yes. Um, his PA told me that many women struggle um, with conception because of the folate factor that's involved in this, right? So imagine that just like vitamin D, you have folate receptors on your cells. If you have folic acid, which is in pretty much every vitamin, every um, enriched flour, and like gluten, and then um, in any prenatal that I was taking when I was pregnant with my first, all those things clog up your folate receptors if you have this homozygous variant. And what that does is that it prevents nutritional folate that you get from leafy greens and from vegetables uh, like asparagus, etc. It prevents the folate from entering your cells and doing its job. So you're taking in all the right nutrients, but basically unable to harness them. Well, I wasn't taking in all the right nutrients. That was the point. I was eating gluten all the time. I cut it out at the end of April after we started investigating this, and it proved to be a good decision based on my genetic makeup. But all, all of those things together would have uh, made it difficult for me to move at a normal pace with clearing waste. And on top of that, when I dumped Clomid in my body and toxic estrogen built up and built up and built up. And so it was not a shocker that I developed polyp fragments off of tamoxifen or that I developed breast cancer off of Clomid after this call. So this is all because the MTHFR genetic variant that you carry does not allow you to clear waste byproducts as quickly as possible. Yeah, and it's interesting because I still haven't um, dug in, I mean, we have dug into this, but I still have questions, you know, what evolutionarily speaking would have given us an advantage of having this because so many people in South Asia have the homozygous copy of MTHFR though I'm sure most people don't realize that obviously both of our parents gave it to me and we haven't even gotten you checked yet but I mean you probably have it too so at this point we're looking at a situation where you know historically many people have had it but now it seems like it's playing a larger role in how outcomes are structured in certain situations, according to some doctors. And I would want to know what shifted from past to present. 
And so what did Dr. Gundry's office recommend you do to compensate? Yeah, so they recommended a couple of things. They knew that I had been cleared for a pregnancy in the spring. I had just resumed uh, my first cycle, um, TMI, at the end of June. So after two and a half months of getting off the blocker, I finally got a cycle. So this was right before I consulted with their office, and they knew that. So they suggested take um, 5,000 mcgs of methyl B12 sublingually underneath the tongue because it is absorbed better in the body when you do that versus just swallowing a capsule. Take methylfolate, about a thousand mcgs of that. And then they suggested zinc as well with copper um, for the immune system. And also zinc is uh, shown to help with conception as well. And then they recommended fish oil, which is anti-inflammatory. Um, and then they recommended eating uh, three Brazil nuts a day, taking iodine, because my iodine, in, interestingly, we saw this in the blood work that they did, it dropped as soon as I gave up gluten because I stopped eating processed uh, sodium. And so I wasn't having iodized sea salt. So they said, add iodized sea salt, take iodine. Um, so I did all this in the summer, starting in July. So July and August, I was doing this. And then we also said, okay, what else can we do nutritionally? Um, because in the second consult with him, he always runs your food panels. So you get a very comprehensive picture of what you are or aren't reactive to. That hadn't happened yet, but you had started doing research into histamines because I was telling you anecdotally that this was the first summer where I had no allergies. This was the first summer where I, when I walked for four or five miles outside, I felt fantastic. It didn't matter how much pollen was flying around me. And this was all just from making these nutritional changes. Well, yeah. I mean, now it makes sense. My body was probably super clogged with so much stuff that it couldn't handle. So I became more and more allergic to environmental things, but I noticed that just completely ebbing away. When we noticed that it was now July and soon it was going to be August and you were trying to conceive as close to the time frame as possible so that you could either resume getting back on the hormone blocker or not. But either way, you didn't want to wait too long. I didn't want to wait too long. Plus the reproductive endocrinologist also basically fired me that I had been working with. So ultimately we made some changes and then you suggested looking at the issue of histamines uh, alongside some of this stuff that I was already doing. There's some research and a few podcasts which address the connection between histamines and estrogens. So basically, in a successful pregnancy, the progesterone balances the estrogen, it keeps the uterine lining intact and in place to house the baby. When estrogen dominates, progesterone can't do its job and the woman gets a cycle again. And so how do you balance the estrogen with the progesterone? Well, you don't want histamines in that process because there is some research that suggests that as histamines go up, estrogen actually increases. And there's a vicious cycle connecting histamines to estrogens. So the goal is to get the histamines down. And when that happens, estrogen doesn't double up, it doesn't dominate, and then progesterone can hopefully do its job. So, well, okay, where are histamines found? They're found in certain foods. And some of these commonly listed foods included avocados, included chocolate, included coffee, and these are things we were having every day. <laughs> so we had to think, is it worth dropping this in the short term? What did you do? 
so through the month of August, I didn't change all that much because we were just starting to learn about some of these things. But after we came back from seeing family in Boston, uh, I, I told you, I said, okay, you know, let, let me try this because I was at the beginning of another cycle by that time. So late August, I had had a cycle and then early September, it by early September, it was done. And it was a normal cycle. None of these cycles seemed out of the ordinary at all that summer. So I said, okay, let's try going off of histamine foods for a while. So I said, I'll you know not have avocados for a couple of weeks and then I'll see what it, it does. And the research that you had read suggested that even sometimes getting off of a histamine rich food for two weeks can make a big difference in the body and you can reintroduce some things and see how you react to it but even just a temporary elimination might prove fortuitous so this was early september it was actually our 10th anniversary this year and uh we had done a lot of stuff um like just with getting our daughter situated for school trying this new nutrition plan spending time as a family um you know i wasn't thinking too too much about it but it was on my mind that you know it had been a couple of months and then sure enough i found out uh the before the end of september that i was pregnant to the surprise of ob number one ob number one uh this is not to their credit by any means, but they said that they were surprised that I could do it without an embryo. And I had multiple people express that surprise. Now, the honest doctor was the one who had encouraged me in April to try for a natural pregnancy myself. And the reason he had given was that he felt uncomfortable with the reproductive endocrinologist uh, to begin with. So he suggested, you do it your way and you navigate it. But I hadn't spoken to him in many, many months. And so when I called him at the end of September to tell him I was pregnant, because I had to do this because he's my oncologist, um, he was very, very happy. And one of the things that I did want to leave this off with was that when I mentioned to him, look, this is what I found out about celiac and my body. This is what I found out about MTHFR. You know, do you check for MTHFR in patients who present with malignancies? And the words that he said to me were, I am ashamed to say that I, I don't. And I just listened and he went on further and he said that ultimately he and people like him, he feels are trained to look at kind of one thing and not be able to make those connections across the spectrum of issues that might be going on in a person's body and kind of creating a cohesion um, to the best of their ability out of that. He said, that's not how we're trained. And he said, to your credit, you did not stop. You persisted. And of course, I had a lot of help with you, Preeti. But ultimately, he said that, you know, to your credit, you did not let the medical system keep you down. And all it made me think about as he said that to me was, it was stunning to hear a doctor who's part of that system say that to a patient. But it also made me realize that though I am a woman and a woman of color, I come from a pretty privileged background. I had a lot of time. I had a lot of support to navigate these challenges. And it made me realize that uh, it, I was very lucky. And when I think about a lot of people who are not able to have advocates in these situations and you know, have the time and the resources, because you know, there are things that you can do medically that are not possible if you don't have money and resources. Of course, in our findings, we only complicate the situation. So rather than just saying, here's a problem, here's the pharmaceutical treatment, and off you go, 
we've complicated it a little bit more by looking at the roles of vitamin D, looking at the roles of a celiac marker, the MTHFR variant. Uh, there are many more pieces to this puzzle, which we'll continue to explore in segments coming up. Stay tuned.